Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Fully Scored. I'm your host, Matthew Frost. In today's episode, we speak to Andrew Wainwright. Andrew has already and continues to make a name for himself around the Salvation Army world and also the wider brass band sphere for his compositions. We spoke recently about his writing, but also his life and other passions he holds. This episode also includes part two of Bandmaster Jonathan Evans's analysis of Ray Steadman Allen's masterpiece on Ratcliffe Highway. If you haven't heard the first part of this analysis, we'd thoroughly recommend taking a moment to listen to it in our previous episode to set the scene for where we pick up today. Joining us on this month's instalment of Arid Island Album is young composer and salvationist Naomi Hill. If you're an avid listener to Fully Scored, please do consider taking the time to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, as this really helps new listeners to find us. Anyway, that's enough of that. On with the interview. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's great to have you on the podcast once again, completing the Fully Scored trilogy, Arid Island album Castaway, Analysis, and now Interviewee. Well, thanks for having me back, Matthew. It's really good to be back on the show and look forward to chatting. Fantastic. Sounds great. So let's start off with some of the questions. Now, frequent listeners may have picked up the weird connection uh, and correlation between being a fully scored guest and having Salvation Army officers as parents. So to all the conspiracy theorists listening, uh, we can genuinely say that this is a complete coincidence, as far as we know. Uh, Andrew, do you fall into this category also? Definitely a conspiracy, I think. <laughs> yes, uh, I do fall into this category. Uh, my parents uh, are retired Salvation Army officers, um, served in quite a few appointments around the world, actually. So spent quite a number of years in Africa, in Kenya and Zimbabwe. So I spent my formative years there. And they had a number of appointments at DHQs and territory headquarters and finished up at IHQ before retirement just a few years ago. They now live in Yorkshire. Nice. Excellent. And can you tell us a little bit more about the places that you mentioned there and some of the other places that you grew up of and have memories of? Yes, I'd say my first memories were of Kenya. Uh, We moved there when I was two and my parents were serving on territorial headquarters there. Um, So I'd say my first memories were really living on a Salvation Army compound, which was an interesting experience. There were quite a number of uh, families living there from around the world and also uh, local Kenyan families as well. Um, so I'd, uh, I, w- I went to preschool there and uh, spent most of the day sort of running around the compound and climbing trees and getting in trouble. I also have fond memories of the Salvation Army there and my first experiences of attending a corps. Uh, I'd often sit in the, in, in the congregation drawing pictures of the band during the meeting and, uh, and I just loved hearing the band. And you mentioned that was probably your first introduction to music here in the Salvation Army Band there. Did you know that that was something you wanted to be involved with at that young age? Or did that come a bit later in your life, the real interest in that music making? I think I was gripped with it straight away, really. Um, as I said, I loved sitting through the meetings and listening to the band. And my, my, my parents used to have recordings on in, um, in the car of the International Staff Band and Canadian Staff Band. So I rem- remember them vividly. Um, so I was always, uh, it was always a passion from a young age and I just couldn't wait to learn an instrument. Uh, so I I got the opportunity, maybe age seven or eight, we'd moved to Zimbabwe by then. And at that time there wasn't, uh, a YP band at Harare City Corps, which is where we, we soldiered. Um, but fortunately they started one, um, around that time when I was around seven or eight. So I got the opportunity to, to learn the cornet. And within a year or two, we had a YP band of maybe 20 members, all had learned from scratch. Um, so it's really quite something. And looking back now, a lot of those people are still involved in the Salvation Army. I'm still in touch with them and they live in different parts of the world. So it's quite, quite something, really. So moving a little bit forwards, you didn't stay in Zimbabwe and Kenya your whole life. What are some of the other places that you grew up in your formative years growing as a musician? Well, when I was age 11, we moved back to the UK and settled in South London and we attended the Bromley Temple Corps and I became involved in the music sections there, played in the YP band and uh, firstly on cornet and then eventually progressing to tenor horn. Uh, 
Um, and within a few years, um, I became a senior soldier and moved into the senior band. And I, I always found our bandmasters were, were very encouraging of me as a player and also as a, an aspiring composer. And they, they were very willing to play my music, which is a big encouragement as a young composer. So thinking back to Don Oliver, who's now in New Zealand, I believe, and Stuart Pallant, who I think is now in the, the USA. Uh, but both uh, big encouragers of me and, and uh, my music at a young age. Also around that time, I had the opportunity to meet a couple of well-known Salvation Army composers. So it, it just so happened that Ray Bowes worked at Judd Street with my father. So he set up a meeting with him and I was able to go and show him uh, a score of a march I was writing at the time, I think, and he had some very valuable advice. And not long after that, I went to IHQ to, to meet Robert Redhead, who was the bandmaster of the ISB at the time. Um, and again, we sat at the piano and um, looked through some of my music and he, he gave me a few tips and um, I'll, I'll never forget that advice. Uh, so it was a, a really inspirational time and, and great opportunity. So that was going to be my next question about when in your journey did you start to dabble with composition? Was that when you got back into the UK? Well, funnily enough, we were on holiday uh, in a place called the Eastern Highlands in Zimbabwe. And I think it was New Year and I was a little bit bored. So my dad said, why don't you go and write some music? Uh, so I got some manuscript paper and... Uh, for some reason, we'd taken a tune book on holiday. I don't know why we did that, but, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, so we had Who this tune book. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> had it in my back pocket. <laughs> um, so I sketched out, I'll go in the strength of the Lord. And it wasn't really composing, but I guess it was my first dabbling with, with writing out music. Um, uh, but but I, I would say it was probably age 12 or 13 that I wrote my first piece. Uh, believe it or not, it was a praise band piece based on Shine, Jesus, Shine. Um, and it actually got played at the core, uh, which was a real encouragement because there's nothing better than having hearing your music played. That's really exciting to hear. And of course, then we know the rest of the history that your writing has gone from strength to strength. Uh, and in 1997, you came runner up in the Arts Channel's Young Composer of the Year for Great Britain. What did that mean to you as a young composer in that journey? Well, it was a tremendous opportunity, I think. And um, I remember writing uh, a Christmas march. It was entitled Christmas Festivity. Uh, so I submitted this application and couldn't believe when I'd heard that I'd made it to the final. Uh, and so went along with my family uh, to the final. It was in Covent Garden at a, a church there. And we got a group together from Bromley Temple uh, to play the piece. There, there were two other finalists and they were completely different to mine. They were very sort of avant-garde, um, neoclassical, I guess. So very contrasting to my piece. Uh, but it was just a, just a great experience to be involved in that and to, to have that encouragement to, to keep going with my writing. And jumping forward a few more years now, uh, you've won many awards for your compositions in the latter years, including the Grindthorpe Colliery Band's Composition Competition, at the River City Brass Band Composition Competition, the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama Corey Band Composition Competition, which is a real mouthful, and the New York <laughs> Staff Band's International Composer Competition. Now, my question to you is, which of your pieces would you award the Andrew Wainwright Most Prized Composition Competition Trophy to? <laughs> oh, take a breath. That's, uh, that's <laughs> quite a mouthful. Well done for getting through that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we made it. Um, good question. Uh, actually, I, I would probably say a piece that I've just finished writing, which is for the North American Brass Band Championships. Um, obviously, I can't say who it's for because it's an own choice selection. Uh, but it's a piece based on Sweet Gothique. Um, and it's, it's a tribute to Notre Dame, um, obviously with the fire happening and the rebuild. Um, and I believe it's due to reopen later this year. So it's really a tribute to that. Um, so it's, uh, it's about a 15 minute work and goes through the various movements of the sweet gothique, uh, with some development in there as well. So that's probably my favorite piece at the moment, I would say. Amazing. I'll look forward to hearing that at some point in the future. Who are some of the composers that inspire you now, or has that changed vastly from piece to piece? That, that definitely has changed over the years. Um, 
I would say Savage and Army wise, Race Deadman Allen definitely. Um, always been influenced by his music, and I, I got the chance to sit down with him a couple of times and look over my scores. Uh, Ken, Kenneth Downey as well. Um, just has this unique way of writing, especially the way that he he will set him tune. He has a a unique kind of sound. Um, I've also got to spend time with him, um, in my my development as a composer. Wilfred Heaton. A uh, very unique way of scoring. Uh, he didn't write a lot of music that was published, but certainly the music that he did write was very, very unique and um, very inspirational. And then outside the Salvation Army, I appreciate Philip Wilby's music, uh, Peter Graham, Philip Spark, uh, a lot of the big test pieces. So I say I'm quite influenced by them as well. So let's use a brass band coming to you to commission a test piece as an example. As a writer, how would you go about composing a piece uh, with that brief? Would you sit down at the piano and see what ideas come to you? Or would you research a theme and, and go from there? Or how would how would you approach that? Yes, I would, I would usually research the theme. And obviously the the brief will, will vary depending on the commission. So sometimes a band will want something like something I've written before or something completely different. Um, sometimes they'll get, give me the theme, sometimes they won't. Uh, for example, the test piece I recently wrote, that was uh, my own inspiration was to use uh, Sweet Gothique as the, the source of inspiration. Uh, but I, usually I would dabble on the piano, like I can't really write without the piano. Uh, I'm not an amazing concert pianist or anything like that, but I can get by just enough to play what I need to. And then the process after that will be using pen and pencil, the old fashioned way, uh, jotting down ideas and motifs and really trying to formulate the piece on paper before I, I go into the computer. Some composers like to write the whole piece on paper and then go into the computer. I, I tend to work a few bars at a time because I like to hear it back and that then stimulates further ideas, I think. Um, and also it plays it back better than I could write, uh, I could play it on the piano. Uh, so, so that's the way I work my way through. Mostly I do write all the notes out on paper because I think it's important to see what's on the page before going into the computer, especially with a big band score with a lot of parts. Things can get very lost and muddled if um, you don't have a clear idea in your mind of what is happening on the page. So normally two or three staves I work with and then go into the computer. Um, and, and I should say it is important not to rely too much on the computer as well, because a computer can play anything. So I think that's where experience comes in of what, what works and what doesn't. And actually having real musicians play your music. So I find I'm, I'm constantly thinking from the perspective of the performer and the conductor, you know, what actually works for these particular instruments. Um, and then when it comes to the end of the process, I finish the piece. I will then go through all the parts and that's kind of my form of editing is to look through the parts and does it make sense from the point of each individual player and and, and invariably you'll always find things that, that need correcting in the score. Um, you know, if things like is the solar horn playing all the way through, does it have any, any rest? Uh, that, that's very important. So looking at each part individually and then deciding, you know, does it, does it work? in the context of an individual part and also in the context of, of the whole. And just going back a step to pick up a point that you mentioned in an earlier question, as a writer, do you prefer having a strict brief about what to write about or do you prefer just having complete creative freedom over what you're going to write about? I think the stricter the brief, the easier it is, actually. Mm. Um, uh, it's Having a blank canvas can be challenging, I think, um, because you've really got no reference to go from. So when, when someone says, you know, we want X, Y, Z, I think that's a lot easier to, to then, you know, get down to work. So now thinking ahead a little bit to the future, what's coming next for you? Are there any exciting compositions in the pipeline? There are a couple actually that I'm looking forward to. So I'm about to start work on a piece for uh, the Five Lake Silver Band, uh, led by Christopher Ward, who many of our listeners may know. Um, and they, they've asked for a piece that's based on Finlandia by Sibelius, which is obviously a wonderful tune. 
Uh, so I've got a few ideas going around in my head for that and I'm about to start work. And the Melbourne staff band recently asked for a piece for Ken Waterworth's 30th anniversary as bandmaster. So that's going to be a, a slower devotional piece. And also Mark Ryder now, who plays trumpet in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, he's asked for a, trump a cornet or trumpet solo with piano. Uh, that's, that's going to be set on a hymn tune for a new recording that he's doing later this year. Sounds really exciting and uh, look forward to hearing those pieces mm -hmm. as well. So as we're recording today, you're coming from the south of the USA in the Dallas area. When did you relocate to the USA and what was the motivation behind moving across the Atlantic? Well, believe it or not, I've been here just over 10 years now um, and it's just flown by actually. But uh, it was 2013, 1st of April actually, that I um, stepped on a plane and arrived in Wisconsin. Well, I arrived in Chicago, but on the way to Wisconsin. Uh, to take on the role of divisional music director for the Wisconsin and Upper Michigan division. Being a divisional music director and being in music ministry was something I felt God was calling me to. Um, so it finally came to fruition in 2013. Um, had a great couple of years there, you know, traveling up and down to the, the division and um, encouraging musicians there. Uh, and it was during that time that I met my uh, future wife, Laura, who was living in Chicago. She was in the Chicago staff band and I was also fortunate to play in the band for a couple of years and be with her there. And a job opportunity came up in Dallas just before we were about to get married, actually. So we had a decision to make and decided to take the leap and move to Dallas. Uh, we knew quite a lot of people down here because both of us had attended the, the music conservatory back in the early 2000s. So we knew a lot of the same people, had, had some good friends here. So decided to take the leap and it's been um, a great decision. We've been here about eight years now. Um, I had three, three really good years in the music department in Texas, served as the deputy division music director. Uh, it was a really fantastic team to work with and a, a great division. There's a lot going on musically. Uh, they have these fantastic summer long camps where the kids come for several weeks. Uh, so getting the opportunity to do that was, was great and to get alongside the kids there. Uh, and then during the year, you would be out on the road visiting core, supporting local music leaders and, um, you know, their music sections. And then the Christmas period was always a great time as well. So we would go out caroling for six to eight weeks, maybe have 30 to 40 gigs that we would play around the Dallas area. Sometimes we'd travel five or six hours just to play for half an hour. Blimey. Um, uh, but it was, yeah, really very fulfilling and uh had had a wonderful time working there in the department before going uh, before moving to become editor of British Bandsman. So one of the things that you've founded whilst you've been in Dallas is the Dallas Brass Band. How did that come about forming a brass band? Well, there were a couple of us in the music department in Texas who had an idea to start a band. Um that there wasn't really a community brass band you know we had a few Salvation Army bands there was a good divisional band and um, some some core band but no sort of community band so it really came out of that and our first rehearsal we cobbled together as many players as we could find made up of Salvationists and local students and anyone that we could get word to and so we probably had about 20 people in the first rehearsal and and the band gradually built from there and soon we we got up to a full complement uh, managed to find a couple of people who would take us for concerts. So our first concert was at the Adult Rehabilitation Centre here. Um, that was a great time. And, and now we're up to about seven or eight concerts a year and also take part in the North American Brass Band Championship. So we've done that the last couple of years. So there's a good variety of things that we do. We, we try and support the Army as much as we can. So we do two or three Salvation Army events every year. Uh, we're part of the big Christmas concert that happens here each year. And uh, we did an Armistice Day concert uh, a couple of months ago uh, at, at the local core as well. So, Excellent. And another aspect to keep you busy, if that all doesn't keep you busy enough, is that you're a very highly skilled graphic designer. And I don't know how many people listening will know, but you've designed album artwork for a majority of the brass band CDs released by Wobplay, uh, certainly in previous years. How did you get into doing graphic design? Well... I studied graphics at university, so did a foundation course in art and design at Central St. Martin's in London. 
And while you're doing that, you, you do about 18 different subjects. So you do two or three days on each. I've probably failed at most of them, but <laughs> there was one area I particularly enjoyed, which was graphics. But an opportunity came when I left university to uh, take on uh, a job in graphic design at SPNS, uh, designing, mainly designing CD covers. Um, so that seemed like a dream job um, coming out of university, and it, and it really was for a number of years. I think I was there for eight years and had a, a, quite a lot of um, fantastic opportunities to, to work with various ensembles and design their CD artwork. So it was always great to collaborate with musicians. Um, and then coming full circle, having gone freelance in the last few years, I'm actually back doing a lot of that work again, working for uh, World of Brass, World of Sound, doing their, their CD artwork design. You're also a keen journalist and have previously been editor of the British Bandsman magazine and the Essay Bandsman. And you're currently editor of the Brass Band Bridge magazine. Is that an aspect of writing that you enjoy? Very much. Actually, it's something that I kind of fell into. It wasn't really part of any plan. But when I was working at SPNS, Trevor Caffel approached me to see if I'd be interested in being the editor of a new magazine, which was to accompany the British bandsman, and it was to be called Essay Bandsman, obviously for Salvation Army banding. Um, and I think it started quite small, maybe with eight pages. Uh, the first issue was um, in 2011, just after ISB 120. So it was a good start, a good time to launch a magazine like that. And I think there was a big review on the event. Uh, but I really enjoyed sort of finding out people's stories and covering events such as that. Uh, got the opportunity to travel a fair amount. Um, and so did the essay bandsman for maybe eight years or so. And then the opportunity to edit British bandsman came along. Uh, and I had a re really good time doing that as well. Again, got the chance to travel and go to the, the European Brass Band Championships in Montreux and report on that. Uh, the National Brass Band Championships of Great Britain and the Royal Albert Hall as well. Um, but I, I just love talking to musicians and liaising with musicians and picking their brains. And that was um, a big part of that. Uh, and also the design aspect of putting together a magazine, which is I really enjoy that process as well. Fantastic. And with your journalistic writing, you've interviewed many top brass musicians from around the Salvation Army world. Um, and what advice do you, would you give on what makes a good interview doing that? Uh, just asking for a friend. <laughs> uh, the opposite of this, maybe? Yeah, great. No, that's fair. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, can't, I can't give you any more of a sensible answer than that. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely okay. And actually, when I was doing my research, because believe it or not, I do do some research for these interviews. <laughs> Listeners may not be able to pick that up. Uh, but I found out that you accredited as being the co-creator of the Gunnosaurus Rex Arsenal Football Club's mascot. What's the story behind that? And uh, are they any good as a team? <laughs> I'll answer the second question first, shall I? Um, they would be good if they could get the ball between the posts and beneath the crossbar and into the net. Because um, they're very good until that point, but just that little important part uh, is somehow missing. Uh, but yeah, they'll get there one day. Uh, but I am a long-suffering Arsenal fan, yeah. <laughs> um, the the Gunnosaurus thing came about, I guess I was about 12 or 13. I was a member of the Junior Gunners fan club. Um, and there was a competition that came up to design a new mascot for the club. So I, I drew a picture of a dinosaur and it had an Arsenal shirt on it and wrote Gunnosaurus under it, Gunnosaurus Rex. So I submitted my idea. Uh, and a few weeks later, I was actually at the South London Music School, my first ever music school, and got a call from my mum to say, um, you're one of the two winners, <laughs> which I could not believe. And it turned out that someone else had actually designed a very similar design, uh, a very similar concept of a dinosaur. So they decided to merge the two, created this, eight foot dinosaur um, with an Arsenal shirt that comes out on the pitch before every home game. Um, and I'm pleased to say it's still going strong now, actually. Excellent. Well, I think that takes us nicely into the quirkier side of this interview with the quirky quickfire questions. Some are more quirky and some are a little less quirky. We'll start with the less <laughs> quirky, shall we? Who All is right. your favourite Salvation Army composer? There are many, so it's hard to narrow down, but I would say... Ray Stedman Allen, probably. And narrowing it down even further, 
Is there a favourite composition from the SA repertoire that you would call your favourite? I think that's even harder, but probably Just As I Am by Wilfred Heaton. Uh, we, we played this piece a lot when I was part of the, the Southern Staff Band, uh, and it never fails to move me and bring me closer to God every time we play it. You know, it just gets me every time. Uh, in fact, some of my most significant spiritual moments have come playing that piece with the Staff Band, often on a, a Sunday morning when we visit a corps. If you could visit any museum anywhere in the world with a click of your fingers, which museum would you go to first? Probably the Natural History Museum in London. Uh, I love London and it's probably my favourite city, so it would be good to go back home just for a day, visit the museum and maybe the Royal Albert Hall, which is down the road as well. Um, something a little bit different now. Have you got a favourite passage of scripture at the moment? Probably Romans 12, verse 2. Um, do not con- conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that there. What's the nicest cathedral that you've ever visited? Good question. Um, probably Notre Dame. I- I've not been inside, but seen it from a boat. Um, Paris is actually where Laura and I got engaged. Um, so we went on a cruise the, the very next day and, and saw Notre Dame. Uh, so, yeah, I think I'm going to give that as my Excellent answer. Excellent answer. And what matters to you more when cooking, taste or presentation? You're assuming that I do the cooking here. Definitely taste. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter what it looks like if it doesn't taste good, right? So. Fair point. Excellent. Yeah. Now, next question. If you had to adorn your windowsills with only one variety of houseplant... What variety would you choose? I think I only know the name of one plant, probably. Um, poinsettia. Is that, a, is that a plant? I think it's a plant, isn't it? Okay, let's go with that. Good answer. Uh, what is your least favourite sport? Curling. I, I, I just don't get it. I guess it's bowling without the excitement and knocking over Skittles, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, nice. And finally, if you were designing a water bottle, what's one non-negotiable feature it would have to have? I think it would be better if it didn't have holes in it because, you know, I've drunk out of some that have had holes and that doesn't really work. Yeah, no, that is a very fair point. Indeed. A lid would be good as well. That's two non-negotiable features, but I'll let you have them both. (laughs) All right, thank you. Very generous. (laughs) So let's uh, jump quickly out of the quirky quickfire pond and that takes us on to Fully Scored Band Manager 2024. So... For any listeners that are new, our band manager segment, uh, each of our guests gets to pick two players that they can nominate for our fantasy band. The players can be chosen for their technical brilliance, their musical brilliance, or their spiritual impact or influence on our guests' lives. So, Andrew, who would your two picks for the Fully Scored Band Manager 2024 band be? Well, I've been fortunate to play with a lot of players in my time in, in various different bands and many people who have influenced me. Um, but I'm going to go for a gentleman who was in our local core band here in Louisville, recently retired from the band, um, and he retired at the age of 96, can you believe? So he kept going all the way until 96. He'd been a bandsman for 82 years. That, that must be some kind of record, I think. And played in about 15 different core bands, I believe. It, you couldn't find a more dependable bandsman than Evan anywhere. Uh, you know, he was there every week, never miss a rehearsal, even even in his uh, mid-90s. So Evan Ramsdale, he's he's a B-flat bass player. Excellent. And who would your second choice for the band be? If I'm allowed, I'm going to go for my grandfather, Gordon Willits. Um, he was a real encourager to me, uh, even when I didn't deserve it. Um, and, he, and he helped inspire me to get into brass bands as well. Uh, we always used to sit there and listen to brass band music together. Uh, he actually played in the Rose Hill Band, and he tells me he used to cycle to band with his baritone on his back, believe it or not. Um, he also played the, the famous Rose Hill March, he used to tell me, off manuscript by Albert Jakeway. And um, he would actually have been 100 this year if he was still alive. Um, uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't someone that wanted the limelight, so I'm sure he'd be happy to play second baritone. Excellent. Two wonderful choices there, and even better rationale behind them. So thank you very much. 
Well, Andrew, we'll see you and speak to you a little bit later in the podcast when you're in the band mastermind hot seat. So we'll give you a little bit of time to prepare yourself mentally for that. But thank you so much for your time speaking with us so far. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Now it's time once again to step into the musical time machine that is RSA's on Ratcliffe Highway as we journey back into the east end of Victorian London with our trusty guide, Jonathan Evans, with part two of his analysis. Well, Jonathan, last time we left off, there was a fight about to happen on Ratcliffe Highway. What happens in this fight? Can you describe the musical chaos that we hear? An Englishman, an Irishman and an American walk into a bar. The beginning of a very funny joke, I hear you ask, Matthew. No, it's letter M and N and some of the best narrative writing ever seen in a brass band score. Firstly, the tune I mentioned in the last episode in reference to Charles Ives, the British Grenadiers, appears in the soprano and xylophone in different keys accompanied by discords and clashes. The tune segues into the E-flat bass before a crescendo to the question, what should we do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? At bar 188, the answer comes in the form of a short two-bar reference to another musical song, Knock'em Down the Old Kent Road. At letter N, the Irishman arrives in the form of the jig Irish washerwoman, played harmoniously in the euphonium and baritone, before the solar horn goes somewhat off-key and the back row cornets interject, trying to sell their lavender again. Hopefully you remember that from the last episode. Classic back row behaviour as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Very true. Last to arrive is the American in the cornets and the xylophone. The arrival of the American provokes a punch being thrown. No comments, please, about Americans. My grandma was American. No comments. And the word thump is written in the score. Whilst it's unclear who throws the first punch and who was struck, it is signified by an 11-part chord. Now, this 11-part chord, looking at it, is much like the final chord of Ives' second symphony. So maybe the fist was American. Only a G natural at concert pitch is missing. Now, I want you to remember that for later that the G is missing. It's the only note missing from that thump chord. Here is some of the most obtuse counterpoint of the whole piece with multiple tunes in multiple keys. I'll try and talk you through them all. The basses move between references to Yankee Doodle and the Soldiers of the Queen. The euphonium continues its Irish jig over the top whilst the horns are barking out Yankee Doodle before joining with the baritone in yet another lavender motif. As the back row take over Yankee Doodle, Meanwhile, from nowhere, a cornet fanfare of Hearts of Yoke, which at the time was the official anthem of the British Navy, sounds out. It's unclear whether the Navy have arrived to observe or to join in with the melee. The trombones drunkenly slide into the return of four more thumps, six bars before O, repeated with the same 11-part chord as before, so no G in there, with Yankee Doodle interjections or pleas between each. We hear two bars of the trombone's violent motif from the very opening this time in the basses as a trill in the cornets holds us in suspense to see who will win the fight. Two bars before O, the trill is released and the trombones declare a three-part figure we have not heard since letter C, taken from London Bridge is falling down and the waltz derived from that. And perhaps here, one of the men really has fallen down. A last reference to Yankee Doodle on a diminuendo in the basis takes us to letter O and a chance to recover and reflect on the barbaric spectacle we've just witnessed. Of course, the question that's on everyone's lips is, who won the fight? Do we find out? Well, the listener can decide, 
but a sorrowful reference to the mid-19th century American sea shanty Shenandoah in the baritone, coupled with those interjections of Yankee Doodle between punches, suggests to me the American has not come out well and may well be showing signs of homesickness and remorse. The London Bridge is falling down a reference that's given in a 5-4 bar that follows could be the American flailing on the floor or even a representation of the British soldier himself being beaten up. Perhaps the luck of the Irish prevailed. Both ways, it's a lamentable scene and so we return to RSA's Lament Melody at letter P. sighing that we referenced in the, the lament previously and the falling thirds of the lament actually rise there are forward moving triplets in the bass and a glimmer of hope emerges as Whitechapel Salvation Army Band one of London's first bands enter the scene led by the low brass and then solar horn singing the 1878 hymn Will Be Heroes a very appropriate choice with the piece being written and premiered in 1978 the words are heavily influenced by warfare and battle-like language reminiscent of some scripture passages in Revelation chapter 12. It's muscular Christianity of a Victorian vintage. We'll be heroes. We'll be heroes when the battle is fierce. When the raging storm louder increase, will our courage increase by the cross. The verse concludes with a really beautiful quintet setting with muted, drunken snarls continuing around these courageous early day salvationists. sudden tempo shift to Allegro brings us face to face with a single drunk at letter R singing the 1868 music hall classic Champagne Charlie. There are many versions of these lyrics but Champagne Charlie is my name, Champagne Charlie is my game, good for any game at night my boys who'll come and join me in a spree, that's just one version. As the drunk first trombone part flutter tongues us into letter S, grace notes are introduced and the singing gets more vulgar, the trombones, again unsurprisingly, to the fore. Meanwhile, the Whitechapel band whisper phrases from another Victorian hymn written in 1870, Hold the Fort, a song inspired by the American Civil War and historically authenticated as being played by Salvation Army bands at the time. At letter T, the bass line shows our drunk becoming a little unsteady on their feet, in RSA's words, with the pulse disguised between pianissimo staccato voices. us to letter U. What does the music tell us here in this section? At U, the bass line continues to stumble, whilst the army band 
represented by the cornets, give a full verse and chorus setting of Hold the Fort at a piano level and marked as the little band, perhaps small in number and awaiting reinforcements. Ho, my comrades, see the signal waving in the sky, reinforcements now appearing, victory is nigh. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still, wave the answer back to heaven. By thy grace we will. Now, early day salvationists took secular songs like Champagne Charlie and set soul-saving words to them in an attempt to attract the working classes. Here's to rum and whiskey, drink them down, drink them down. That becomes Storm the Forts of Darkness, for example. Less known would be the musical song I Ain't Going to Tell, which the army adopted as I Ain't Going to Hell. Well, for Champagne Charlie, read, Bless his name, he sets me free. It's been suggested that for the drunk, there is also a struggle here between the two sets of words and two additional references are made at forte level by the drunk. The first shares the same D-flat key as Hold the Fort, so it's suggesting that he's singing the words, bless his name, he sets me free. The second reference, though, moves into B-flat, creating discord with the band, and rather than him singing, oh, the blood, the precious blood, I am trusting in the cleansing flood, we're actually hearing more references to Champagne Charlie. Three bars before V, the band are in more confident voice, perhaps joined by reinforcements as indicated in the War Cry article by the Jolly Major. Let me read that to you. The Major writes, At half past ten, a lot of people were seen rushing up Cannon Street, and someone said, Oh, the army is coming. And so it proved. Our comrades from Shubriness, Barking, Stratford, Poplar, Canning Town, Enfield Wash, Grays, Ilford, Ponders End, Romford, Waltham Abbey, and all round that district, led on by Staff Captain Noyce, made no small stir as the Whitechapel Soldiers' Band met them with a shout, as of warriors going to battle. And so we have our reinforcements. However, we never hear the final word of the chorus, by thy grace we will. Will doesn't get said, suggesting a nervousness from the band or an interruption from the drunk. And so clearly this would remind us of Leslie Condon's The Present Age, where he's unable to say, deny thee never in his setting of I'll follow thee. Present Age was written 10 years before Ratcliffe Highway. And RSA did a lot of writing about that piece and how inspired he was by the levels of dissonance and the creativity. So interesting that that technique is used by RSA here. So we arrive at letter V. If the Whitechapel band were indeed nervous as they marched down the highway, they and other Salvationists at the time had reason to be. Three years earlier, the confrontations between the Skeleton Army and Worthing Band reached the national press back in September 1883 and again in April 1884. Soot and chamber pot contents were thrown over bandsmen, while those supporting them, like a local businessman called George Hand, had their property burned down and were even arrested. At one point, Salvationists were walking around Worthing armed for protection from the locals, with the police reluctant to interfere and the establishment worried over a movement, the Salvation Army, that could produce a group of sober, upright workers who might demand proper pay and adequate conditions. In Worthing, the riot act was read for the only time in the town's history. Mass brawls broke out not just there, though, but in 67 towns and villages, with thousands of Salvation Army officers injured and hundreds of army buildings damaged. Fast forward to the 1930s. RSA's parents were stationed in Worthing and um, that scene of these skeleton army attacks. As a boy, he attended the 50th anniversary of the Corps, and witnessed the presentation of the original blood-stained core flag encased in glass, uh, and I know that it's still there as well. RSA is likely then to have heard first-hand stories of these encounters 
from Corps folk and reformed skeleton army member and leader for the weekend, British Commissioner Charles Jeffreys. He was the equivalent of the modern-day territorial commander. He was also one of the skeleton army's early ringleaders as a 16-year-old. He was a captain within the skeleton army in the Whitechapel branch and was well known for disrupting Salvation Army public meetings and assaulting soldiers and officers. One officer at the time, one Salvation Army officer, Colonel George Holmes, vividly recalled one incident he witnessed as a boy in 1881. It was very rough. I remember attending an open-air meeting one Sunday night outside the Blind Beggar pub. Afterwards, we marched to our hall on Whitechapel Road. The skeletons, directed by Charles Jeffreys, headed our procession, proceeding at a snail's pace and compelling us to do so. Thus handicapped, we were jostled and pelted with decayed fruit and mud. Ironically, the same Charles Jeffreys was converted at one of the very meetings he tried to disrupt at Whitechapel Salvation Army, alongside over 20 other members of the skeletons. And this provides us then with a link between the Whitechapel band of the 1880s and an 11-year-old RSA in the 1930s. And RSA's recollection of that Worthing Corps anniversary weekend where he met Commissioner Jeffries states that a sense of persecution of early-day Salvationists was embedded in his mind for the rest of his life. All of what I've just said about Charles Jeffries and the skeletons provides context to the second imagined event introduced by RSA at Letter V, a confrontation between the drunk and the Salvation Army band. Some amazing stories there and great to hear a bit of that history. We ended our first analysis on a scuffle on Ratcliffe Highway and I think it would be an appropriate time to end our second part of the analysis with another upcoming scuffle of a different nature on the highway. We look forward to hearing you in our next episode again, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. In our next episode, we'll bring this epic trilogy to its conclusion. But for now, it's time to journey far, far away from the streets of East London. Island. Today's guest is Naomi Hill. Well, Naomi, thank you for joining us on the Arid Island. Always temperate, how are you finding the surroundings? Well, it's a lot warmer than Huddersfield. Um, yeah. <laughs> Though I'm sure on some days even Antarctica is. Thank you, in all seriousness, for joining us on this bit of the podcast. So I've got a couple of questions to get to know you a little bit more before we talk about your album choice. So, first of all, I believe you're a euphonium player. Can you tell us a little bit about your studying and uh, your music making? Yes, so I play euphonium and baritone as well. Um, so I've I finished my undergraduate degree at Huddersfield um, last July. Um, I'm now continuing at postgraduate, doing a performance master's, um, but obviously doing composition on the side as well. And let's speak a bit about that composition. I believe that this has been a real passion for you over the last few years. Can you tell us about how you got into writing music? I'm not sure there was a clear-cut kind of um, I'm now going to start writing music sort of thing, but um, as I started to study more kind of through, I guess, my teenage years, um, I sort of drifted towards um, thinking about composition as something that maybe I could do. Um and then obviously through GCSEs and A-level, that becomes quite a big part of what you have to do. Yeah, and I feel like that kind of developed from there. Um, and then once I started undergraduate, I was kind of exposed to, yeah, different ways of thinking about composition. Um, not kind of the regimented, oh, this is um, an A-level composition. Um, it was more kind of, well, what's your kind of compositional voice um, that I've not thought about before. Um, it's been a gradual journey, I guess. Um, yeah, steered more towards um, kind of brass band and choral writing um, in the last few years, um, but also enjoy writing um, for other instrumentations too. Fantastic, and I believe you've recently won an award for one of your compositions. In I think it was in 
in November, I think. Unibrass, who are a brass band contest for uh, university brass bands, happens every year. Um, they did for the first time a composition competition, which is a bit of a tongue twister. Um, and I entered not expecting anything. Um, I entered a composition that I'd written last May. Um, I'd worked on it a little bit as well with Andrew Makarath when I was doing the uh, mentoring scheme last year. Um, and it kind of developed from May to kind of September. Um, so yeah, I entered it and then I heard back that I'd been shortlisted um, and then won it. Congratulations on that, that's excellent. And what comes next for you in your composing journey? Are you working on any masterpieces at the moment? As part of the kind of, I guess, prize for winning that, um, Ferdinand's band will be playing it at the Unibrass um, Gala concert in February. Um, so that's kind of, a, I guess, a little bit of a milestone. Um, I've also been writing pieces for the University Brass Band, um, so they're also playing one of my pieces when we compete at the contest in February. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to hearing many more to come over the years. So that brings us on to our all-important question. You're stuck on an arid and deserted island. What album have you chosen to pack with you and why? Um, like most people, this is a really difficult question. Um, I feel like there's too many uh, to be able to narrow it down. But um, my first thought was Heaton. Um, I remember the first time that I played... Um, just as I am by Heaton. Um, I remember thinking like that this score's so old, this these parts are so old and it all seems so alien, but then we played it and it just came alive with such meaning um, and intensity as well. Um, so I think that's always been, Heaton's music in particular, and Eric Balls as well, has always been quite a um, intriguing thing for me in terms of composition. Um, but then I was thinking, my second thought is if I'm on an island, I kind of need something that's quite, um, varied um so i i think i'm gonna go with um worship the king by new york staff band which was released last april i believe yeah there's such a contrasting range of pieces um there um and all of the tracks somehow no matter how many times i listen to it they always seem to be able to twig an earworm of a worship song um at some point yeah and it's definitely provided some good train journey and the walk into uni music um but yeah, there's so many songs hidden in there that always give me a timely reminder. Um, so I feel like that would be useful on an island because um, some uplifting might be required. Um, it's also uh, yeah full of quite new pieces, um, which again, compositionally, I found quite interesting. Um, I particularly like the second track by Marcus Venables, Hear the Call, um, which I quite like that it's at the beginning of the album, well, the second track. Um, because it seems to set our hearts in the right place from the get-go. Um, it uses a song, Oh Church Arise, um, and one line in particular that kind of always sticks out when I hear it um, is an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Um, yeah, and I think that just challenges us, but also energises us to consider um, how we can be beacons of love um, and ultimately point people to Jesus. And yeah, I feel that the al this album does that um, really well. Um, so yeah, although my th first thought was Heaton, I think I'll go with Worship the King. Fantastic. A great album choice and a great album there. And uh, thank you so much, Naomi, for giving up your time to join us today. We wish you well for the rest of the stay on the island. It's time to take off your band caps and slip on your thinking caps. In Sparsely Scored, we play a small segment of a piece of Salvation Army music, and your job is to identify it. If you can, send us our direct message on any of our social media platforms to be crowned victorious. The field of play is still open, and the crown poised to be snatched. In the last episode, you heard just the second horn part, well, here's the episode again, but with another part added. Here it is again.
If you think you know, let us know. <laughs> Can you smell burning? Does that smell like burning to you and a hint of leather? Ah, oh, it must be the Bandmaster Mine Hot Seat. Well, Andrew, welcome back to Fully Scored and welcome back to the Bandmaster Mind Hot Seat. On a scale of 1 to Z, how toasty is it? Uh, why? Why? Yes. For youch, that's hot. Excellent. So, for those, again, that are new to the podcast, you'll be given one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions as you can to see where you get placed on the Fully Scored board. Is there a particular place or a person that you're looking to beat? I quite like to match Gary Fountain. Um, if I can match him, I'll, I'll be happy. Yeah. Excellent. Did he get three? Two, two, two? I think. Two? Yeah. Okay, yeah. excellent. Well, the tension is mm-hmm. building and the time is nearly starting. Andrew Wainwright, are you ready to play Bandmaster? Not really, but, but go ahead. Then your time starts now. Peter Graham wrote which piece for the 1991 centenary celebration of the ISB? Blazon? Correct. Of which orchestra has Ron Prussing been part of the trombone section since 1980? Is it the Sydney Symphony Orchestra? or? Sydney? Correct. What year was the New York Staff Band formed? Ooh. Uh, they're the oldest staff band. 18... Uh, 1885? No. <laughs> no you are so close, no. but we'll move on. Over the years, many composers have written musical settings of O Magnum Mysterium. Which composer's work is the only one to have been transcribed and published in the Salvation Army Music Journal? Pass. Okay. Can you name one of the players who performed in the quintet playing festivity at the recent Les Condon tribute night? Philip Cobb. Correct. Who composed the title track of the 2019 New York Staff Band album, album which featured Philip Cobb as a soloist? Pass. Which band is featured in the opening titles of Marching As To War? Uh, ISB. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Dean Goffin's The Light of the World is based on an artwork by which artist? Oh, pass. Okay, what is number 285 in the festival series? (laughs) Mm, Pass. And I'm afraid that is your time up there, so... That gives you a grand total of three, correct? And you have beaten Gary Fountain. Hallelujah. <laughs> so there you go. You can sleep easy now. I'll just go through the answers of the ones that you didn't quite get, and yep. you can kick yourself quietly under the table. <laughs> so the New York Staff Band was formed in 1887. Ah, oh, close. So close. Yeah. Um, the only setting of O Magnum Mysterium, which is published in the SA Music Journals, is the Thomas Louis de Victoria setting. Oh, never would have got that. So you were correct about the um, Phil Cobb playing in the festivity quintet. You could also have Thomas Nielsen, Isabel Dawes, Dudley Bright and Stephen Williams. And the title track for the 2019 New York Staff Band album is Proclamation, which was composed by Tom Devoren. Okay. The band featured in the opening titles of Marching As To War is Norwich Citadel Band. Right. And Dean Goffin's The Lighter World is based on the allegorical artwork by Holman Hunt. Ah, that's right. And 285 in the festival series, for any listeners listening at home that may know, is Easter Glory. Oh, I should have got that, shouldn't I? So there we go. Three is really not a bad score for Band Mastermind at all. So congratulations. Thank you. See, I I thought you were going to send the questions beforehand. Oh, yeah, that that would be cheating. (laughs) And everyone would get far better marks. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for giving up your time to speak to us. It's really been a privilege and a pleasure to chat to you. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Andrew, for your time. And, of course, a good run at Band Mastermind. And so, like the burning embers, we so must extinguish. Actually, that sounds a little bit sombre. It's just time to end this episode. But before we do, a handful of hearty thanks. Thank you to our terrific trio of guests, Andrew, Jonathan and Naomi, for your expertise, wisdom and time. We're truly grateful. Thank you to our producer, Simon Gash, 
for much like a bricklayer, assembling all the pieces of the pod into a worthy structure. Thank you to Wobplay for once again hosting this episode and a thoughtfully curated playlist to compliment. See you next time. Goodbye, and don't worry, I haven't really forgotten to thank you dedicated listening heroes that have made it this far. Now, go and be heroes somewhere else. See you next time. Goodbye, and God bless. Goodbye.